I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Darawal people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. That's what I love about wine is that I will never know everything. And I think that's so humbling and it's to not go into it scared, but go into it more with curiosity. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Emily Zagar was born and raised in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. Her journey in wine has taken her back and forth across the globe, focusing on marketing and sales. Today, she heads up her role as Director of Sales for the West Division and Export for one of the pioneering families of Oregon wine, Sockleblosser. Hi, Emily. Thanks for joining me. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you spending some time with us because I know that the guys at Cuttings would have you on a very busy program while you're out here in in Australia. So thank you so much for making the time. I want to hear a little bit about you and your story within wine. Can you take us back to your first memory that you have of kind of taking notice of wine? Yeah. So I'm born and raised in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And unbeknownst to me, I really did not know that this backdrop of vines would actually become part of my career and really part of my passion in life. I would say the first calling or the first interest I had towards recognizing wine for what it is actually was back in high school. I worked for a catering company and this catering company, our kitchen was based out of the Willamette Valley Vineyards, which is another very iconic Oregon winery. And going to the vineyard every day to, you know, work for the catering business, but seeing the changes of the seasons on the vines, seeing the people coming in to taste wines in their tasting room is really what first piqued my interest, I would say. And it wasn't until later during my undergraduate that this came to be more embedded into what I was actually interested in in terms of a career. But that was really the first eye-opening experience I would have into into the world of wine. Yeah, I think sometimes it's that absolute level of detail and passion that people that are involved in the wine industry is something that kind of piques our interest to start with, you know? It's kind of like, oh, this is a big deal and people take this really seriously. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, you joined Sockle Blosser in 2012 originally. What was your role in that, in, in your first kind of um, – experience with them because then you went and did some amazing things over over the world but where did, where did it start at Sockle Blosser? Yeah it's such a, a lovely story I get to share and just a great connection I have to the Sockle Blosser family. So I did my undergraduate studies at Linfield College now known as Linfield University which is based in the heart of the Willamette Valley or Oregon wine country called McMinnville that's the town and I took Linfield's very first wine focused class. Now there's an entire department dedicated to wine marketing and viticulture and analogy. But back then it was just this one class called a focus on the wine industry. And this, we touched every little aspect that we could within arm's reach in Oregon. So people who were marketing wine, people who were designing labels, our local Cooper. But of course we visited an array of Oregon wineries and Sokolblosser was the very first winery we visited as part of that class. And of course, I was totally enamored by the story, the history and the legacy of the Sokolblossers. And we had lunch up at the winery. 
And I sat next to Alison Sokolblosser, who is now co-president and second generation of Bill and Susan and our CEO. And I remember chatting with Allison over lunch. And then it was a couple months later that I decided, you know, I didn't want to go back and actually work this amazing catering job that I've been doing for the summer holidays. I was like, I want to take my stab at getting involved in the wine industry. So I sent Allison an email, reintroduced myself, and sure enough, they needed one more full-time person in the tasting room for the summer. Went up the very next day, met with the team, and was hired. And technically, it was a great, fun story because it was just a couple weeks shy of my 21st birthday. So in the U.S., that's when you can start legally drinking wine and also pouring it for others. So that is where my tenure with Sokol Blaster truly started. So working in the tasting room, and then about a year later, once I graduated from Linfield, moved over to our direct-to-consumer team. So really got the four-way into the wine industry in terms of that the DTC piece. So phone sales, um, phone sales, sales online, and then also really just honed in on our wine club, which for me was the fantastic balance between interacting with people, talking about wine, but then also the business side as well in terms of the planning and the inventory management and the pricing of, of wine as well. And that is really where I started. And so now I like to kind of call myself old new when it comes to when it comes to my time with working for Sokol Blosser. I think that's so lovely because, you know, the the experience that you would have had with Alison and that's being so green and so new and now to have come full circle. And I want I definitely will touch on Sockle Blosser and their story, but I think it's quite amazing that you know, you've had all this experience in between there, um, but they will always still remember you probably as that bright eyed young girl who was saying, I don't know anything about this, but I really would love to be involved and, you know, gave you a shot straight onto the tasting room, which I just think is beautiful. But so you started with them and then you went and did some incredible things. I mean, when I look at your resume, I really, and, and your bio, I really just think, gosh, this is the person that had such a vast experience within so many different aspects throughout the world that you're the perfect person to be in the role that you're in now. So you spent some time in Australia. Uh, you did your master's of business in the uh, at University of Adelaide. Tell me about um, your time in, in Adelaide and what were your first kind of um, impressions of Australians? Yes. Well, I'll take a step back just to say, you know, once I had been managing the wine club at Sokol Blaster, that's really when I knew the wine bug had bitten me quite hard. And so I started looking for programs because I always wanted to do my MBA. So looking for programs that married the two. And that's how I landed on the University of Adelaide. So moved down to Adelaide January of 2015. And to kind of answer your question, you know, what was my first impression of Australians of just the most lovely, kind, fun people. But in terms of wine specifically, you know, here's me, as you already mentioned, you know, a little green and had started cutting my teeth in wine in Oregon. But I knew that there was a much bigger global picture and I wanted to get out and to be able to get the experience in that 30,000 foot perspective and to also better understand the volume of wine, right? You know, Australia... While you are far away, you do produce a beautiful array and a lot of wine. 
And Oregon, we represent just 1% of all the wine that's produced in the United States. So I really wanted to have a better understanding of that scope and scale. And when I first arrived in Australia, I met a woman in my coursework who was Australian. And we chatted outside of one of our very first classes. And, you know, I was just had arrived and, you know, wanted to get a job part-time while I was doing my studies. And she actually worked for Penfolds in the Barossa Valley, but said, oh, look, I know there's, you know, McGill Estate cellar door. Surely we can sit, set you up there. And I think it was just a couple of days later, I went up to Penfolds McGill Estate and interviewed and got a job working in the cellar door. So really my first foray into Australian wine was with Penfolds, which I mean, what an iconic brand, but also here's little me like, oh my gosh, like tasting Barossa Valley Shiraz and just all their, you know, Bordeaux style blend wines was like, wow, what is this? So it was a little bit of a palate shock, but that was definitely a great first step into understanding a different style, but then also really rich history when it comes to Australian wine. Yeah. I mean, you went straight to the the heart of our red wine <laughs> I <did>. mecca. <laughs> you also um, did a little bit of time at East End Cellars, which is fantastic because I think it's great to kind of see that um, that retail side of things. And how was your experience there? I had a great experience working at East End Cellars and what a fun, fun place to get to work right in Adelaide CBD. Just really the opportunity to connect with so many guests either coming into the bottle shop or wanting to enjoy a glass of wine. And they did such a good job of really keeping a fresh and really well rotated by the glass list, but then people being able to get a bottle from the retail side and enjoy there. So for me, that was one, a great experience for my palate just because I was tasting wine so consistently, but also now having that eye for a lot of Australian labels, right? Really understanding, oh, okay, yes, I know this producer. They're very focused on South Australian wines, but of course, great offerings from all over Australia and all around the world as well. So better understanding what Australians were wanting to drink and at a variety of different price points as well. So that was just such an absolute joy to get to work there. And it's such an iconic spot as well. Like I don't think, again, Looking back, I didn't realize at that time, like, wow, these are, you know, whether it was Penfolds or East End Cellars, but two very well-recognized establishments or, or wineries, I should say, as well, just to get that experience and working in there and meeting different people was was really, really fun and, you know, good from a network and palate perspective as well. I mean, so much about wine is just first figuring out what you're looking at on a label and what that means with each country, how they have their different, you know, appellations or the way that they describe wine or what they put on the label. So, I mean, it, it really is like learning another language. And, and unless you're familiar with the regions, you know, they're named after what, whatever they may be, the first settlers or whatever it may be. It's, it's just a complete, sometimes it just looks like words and you think that doesn't mean anything to me. So until you're really in the place and you start speaking the language, it doesn't really resonate, does it? Exactly. And that's why, you know, for those who may be intimidated by wine or just in their infancy in terms of learning, it just takes practice. And, you know, even me, I'm still learning. And that's what 
I love about wine is that I will never know everything. And I think that's so humbling. And it's to not go into it scared, but go into it more with curiosity. And I find that more and more people are in our industries are more understanding and aware of that. So it's not become this, you know, we're trying to take down that kind of pompous, you know, or those barriers to it. And it just takes practice. Like I said, I mean, just you really have to train that muscle of first understanding the verbiage and the language on the label and just getting yourself acclimatized to what all those different meanings, because it's different. Like you said, it's different from one region to the next. And it's also different from country to country. So it just definitely takes time. Oh, a hundred percent. But talking about that, you then flipped the script completely and moved to Hong Kong to do your thesis on uh, Asian wine consumption, which I must just imagine to be so different to what you were used to. Um, and you worked actually for a friend, uh, Eddie McDougall at The Flying Winemaker. What did you learn from that time in, in Hong Kong and, and how the Asian wine market kind of worked? A lot. So I had the opportunity to join a pilot program through the MBA department that took a group of students to Hong Kong, and it had a focus on wine. And that's how I met Eddie and decided, okay, I want to create this connection and see if I can intern with this business for a short period of time. And then also to be smack dab amidst my sample population for my thesis was really, really fantastic. And I think the overarching theme or kind of connectivity, I should say, of my master's was that greater focus on Asia because of the proximity, but also at that time, strong business ties between the Australian wine industry and Hong Kong. So being there was an incredible experience. I think I had a very great mindset because it was three months time, you know, really taking advantage of all that that could offer me. And then that was really my first experience into a startup, if you will, a very agile, small team that were really trying to find their niche still. And so again, having my hands in a few different pots, that's really where I first worked with importing wine because I was helping build content for the Asian Wine Review publication and seeking out wines from all across Asia and then working through the logistics of actually getting them to Hong Kong. So, you know, again, not knowing where that would lead me or what that experience would help for my role now, but, you know, trying to get wine in from Japan or other parts of China or India or Israel. So it was really fascinating to convey to these producers what we were trying to do and what we were trying to get recognized. And then the whole logistics side of things was really, really, it was a challenge, but it it definitely kept me on my toes and my interests engaged. I I mean, I have to commend you because every different um, title that you've had is just yeah, completely different from the next. And I I mean, yeah, you've really thrown yourself in the deep end. Speaking of which, you then moved in 2016 to be an ambassador for Perno Ricard. So from, like you said, a little startup unto one of the biggest companies of of beverages in the world. So what was working for a company like Perno Ricard like? Another wonderful and eye-opening experience. And again, being in Australia, And knowing where I'd come from in Oregon and what I'd experienced in Adelaide, I really wanted to see what it would be like to work for a global supplier. You know, as you mentioned, one of the large 
one of the world's largest beverage suppliers and getting to join the Pernod Ricard team as part of their wine ambassador program was truly once in a lifetime. So I had the opportunity to undergo a very intensive six months training with Pernod Ricard and had the opportunity to really get immersed in each one of their wineries and their brand home. So really becoming the brand expert of all their wine portfolio was exceptional because it was not just focused on their company culture and business acumen, but also really understanding the ins and outs and the character character of each brand. So this program aligned this training with Harvest. So we had the opportunity to not only work with the marketing team and understand the sales strategy, but to actually be in the vineyard and then be in the winery. So it wasn't just, I was looking at a marketing deck and, oh yeah, I can go talk about this wine. I truly lived and breathed it. And it was a really, like I said, truly once in a lifetime and made lifelong friends that program. And ultimately where I was based then for Pano Ricard was first in Dallas, Texas. So you can imagine (laughs) little me from Oregon. We are very green. I am definitely a lover of nature and to have been abroad for three years and to come back to the States to Texas was like a foreign country to me. So <laughs> it was a it was a great landscape to really first learn and really truly be embedded with our distribution system in the United States, which is known as a three-tier system. So working very closely with our sales distribution company in Texas and across the greater Southwest and really being able to speak to the wines a lot more closely than what you know a sales representative might be able to do because they have thousands and thousands of brands in their portfolio. So I was truly there to help be that champion and to not only communicate, of course, the brand, but actually get to share my experiences and my stories about when I was in the vineyard or what happened Mm. in the winery or this funny story that I had with the winemaker when we were down at the pub. So really bringing to light some of those more nuances of each wine in Texas, because of course, you know, Yes, they're making some wine in Texas, but most of the Pernod Ricard wines were coming from all around the world. So really to be able to highlight that was was quite the experience. I mean, I haven't heard of a program like that before. And I just think, I mean, yeah, some of the opportunity to to be in the vineyards of Ribera de Duero and Sonoma and, and Marlborough, I'm just incredible. But I think that's really smart of them because like you said, it's, it's those stories and those moments with the people that, um, you know, you're able to kind of add that other layer of, of um, knowledge to when you're actually helping championing these areas and these wineries. So what an amazing experience. And, and yeah, I'm sure one that will stay with you for a very long time. And uh, 2019, you came back to Oregon and rejoined Sockleblosser. Um, I have such a soft spot for um, these wines and also for the story of Sockleblosser because they were such a pioneering family back in uh, 1971 when they first planted vines. Can you tell me a little bit about, I mean, and I know it's an in-depth story, but can you tell me a little bit about the story of and the people of Sockleblosser? Blosser? 
Yes, it's a favorite of mine to get to tell. So our name comes from our founders, Bill Blosser and Susan Sokol. And Susan and Bill were a very young, vivacious couple. And after they had earned their liberal arts degrees and had been told, you can do anything with a liberal arts degree. But they were truly of that very hippie era in the U.S. We're driving around in their Volkswagen van. And Bill had a little bit more of a soft spot, unbeknownst to Susan, for viticulture and winemaking. Neither had any experience. They didn't even have any business experience, but they decided, yes, we want to start our own vineyard. And so they wanted to go to Oregon. They didn't want to seek out land in California. So they came to what is the Willamette Valley. And now we have They started with just five acres in what was not then known as the Dundee Hills. So actually, when Bill and Susan first started, Oregon had yet to establish what we call in the United States AVAs or American Viticulture Areas. So they purchased their first five acres in the Dundee Hills and grew from there. And as you prefaced, this was back in 1971. So if you're quick at math, you know that last year in 2021, we celebrated our 50th anniversary, which was such a milestone for us. And in 2008, Bill and Susan handed the business over to the second generation. So two of their three children, Alex and Allison Sokolblosser. So brother and sister as co-presidents now of the winery. Alex is our viticulturist and winemaker, and Allison is our CEO. And their personalities could not be more polar opposite, but the way that they work together is fantastic. And Alex is so jovial and lively and, you know, can be kind of that bit of a grumpy winemaker at times. And Allison is just sharp as a tack, excellent business acumen, really has that strategy and long-term vision for the winery. And for us as a second generation business, the goal is to hand this over to the third generation. So we have Bill and Susan that established the winery, three of their children, and there are eight members of that third generation. And the winery has just started a third generation internship program. So the eldest of the third generation, he's 22, and he just finished his undergraduate studies and is part of that internship program for the summer. So six weeks of really just getting a great touch and review of every aspect of the business. So he's been with me in a couple sales meetings. He's going to go on the road with me at the end of this month down to California. And then not in too long, he'll be working harvest. So really just to give that foray of what the business is with no expectation to come to it because the family is very much a proponent, go off, go do your own things and then see if it's something of interest to come back to because that's what both Alex and Allison did, right? They left, they went and had other experience and they decided, yeah, I want to come back and be a part of this and, and take on the reins from our parents. It really does seem to be the the kind of format for so many um, family-owned operations that they have the ability to understand that, that you know, people need to go or their children need to go and experience something else. And I think it's wonderful because, you know, it does in turn lead them to other great experiences, but always that return back to actually, you know, I didn't realize just how amazing um, the legacy that I was born into kind of becomes. So, um 
And Soccer Blossom to me seems to be, you know, uh, it is quite a big company now in terms of your staffing levels, but it seems to be really designed on a, a small family valued and operated kind of business as well. It seems to have a nice balance of the two. Would you say so? Absolutely. It's one of those things as an employee I really speak strongly of because we are a very lean team, but we work very well together. And in terms of actually knowing our values and knowing what we stand for is something that's accessible and very much a part of our day to day, which is very refreshing, right? It's incredibly humbling and refreshing just to know what we stand for and what we really value, especially being, you know, organic certified in our state vineyards, a B Corp certified winery. So we really put forth these actionable steps to be more sustainable or be more mindful of our community. And as an employee, I'm like, I get to be a part of that and I can help make a change is, is definitely really great to be involved in that. A lot of um, sommeliers or or Australians that get to try these wines, my experience with tasting Oregon wines, it kind of goes backwards to perhaps what you've experienced in that I taste something in a glass and then I say, gosh, why does it taste like that? And then I start to look at, okay, what did they do in the winemaking and then go back further and what what happened, what kind of clones are they using? What did they do in the vineyard? What happened in these soils millions of years ago? Why does it taste like it does? Tell us a little bit about, I mean, um, the Dundee Hills or the, the state um, sites and the Eola Amity and Yamahill Carlton, because there's kind of a few different areas that the, you make wine for, from and some really distinct soils as well, which I think is really important to, especially to the Pinot to what Pinot Noir offering that you have. Yes, definitely. So the Willamette Valley is so unique in the sense that thousands of years ago, it actually used to be a lake. It was called Lake Allison. And when all that water receded, we were left with a variety of different soil types. So millions of years ago, when the tectonic plates shifted out in the Pacific Ocean, it actually pushed a lot of the ocean floor inland. And then thousands of years ago, you had the Missoula floods, which was when a glacier broke out near Montana and pushed down all these different topsoils. So depending on where you are at within the Willamette Valley, you will find different soil types. We have volcanic soil, we have marine sedimentary soil, we have some lust soil. And what we have found as we've been creating and distinguishing these different AVAs, American Viticulture Areas, a lot of that has to do deal with the specific soil types. So for us, our Dundee Hills Estate Vineyard, we are on what's known as Jory Soil, J-O-R-Y. This is a red clay volcanic soil. And this is really what offers our Pinot Noir in particular, beautiful earthiness, some structure, but also some of that nice forest floor, our mushroom characteristic, whereas Eel Amity, a little further south, may have more marine sedimentary. And Alex, he is a geology geek. So he loves this. Like, oh my gosh, what different soil nuances are in this particular vineyard block or even this particular vineyard site. You mentioned Yamhill Carlton. This is a AVA that is to the northwest of us. This particular vineyard, which is called Kalita Vineyard, we welcomed into our portfolio. We purchased that vineyard just about a year ago now. And this is going to bring even more diversity in terms of soil type and what that can offer for Pinot Noir. So for Alex, it's really about highlighting the purity of the fruit, 
that also is distinguished by these different soil types. So it's really amazing to get to experience an Oregon Pinot Noir, specifically from the Willamette Valley. But as you dive even further into getting to taste throughout the Willamette Valley and exploring these different AVAs, you can really taste and to better understand these nuances because of the soil. Definitely. And I think Oregon's... um you know, like you said, it's 1% of, of production in terms of the international market, but um, it's so unique and it has such a high quality and standard of wine, in my opinion. And I think, you know, wrapping my head around it, I was always saying, you know, Oregon represents, um, especially when it comes to Pinot Noir, this incredible concentration of fruit. And when you said a little bit of structure, I think a huge amount of really great quality tannin structure that I think, you know, stands the test of time and but also this kind of elegance and this earthy quality so it really kind of ticks the boxes for all these different complexities then you get in wine but they're on a level that is uniquely Oregon so when you kind of taste them in a blind lineup you're like it could be this it could be this could be this and when I get all of those things together it's Oregon (laughs) (laughs) no absolutely and I, I would add another thing to that would just be the freshness because of acidity this is one thing that I really love about Oregon wines in particular is that focus on the freshness because of the acid structure we have great a nice diurnal temperature range and a nice long growing season in the Willamette Valley. And it just allows the grapes to maintain and preserve acidity throughout that growing season. And that is just comes through and bringing that nice freshness to the wine, whether it's Pinot Noir, whether it's Pinot Gris or Chardonnay, that is definitely for me, that's a consistency. And I really, really love getting to showcase that and really highlight that, especially when it comes to food and wine pairings. Yes, absolutely. So much possibility and so many, um, I mean, talking about, you know, the Pinot Gris, I actually have the 19 state Pinot Gris in front of me and it just, it has the vibrancy and the fresh fruit quality, um, but then also some lovely kind of pithy textures to it to as well. So it's such an, and like you said, it, it just um, opens the door for so many opportunities for, for food and wine pairing. Yes. And that Pinot Gris is one of my favorite wines of our portfolio. It's hand harvested and whole cluster pressed. You get some nice textural complexity to this wine, but again, finishes really bright and fresh because of that acid. And it's definitely a great gastronomy wine as well. Gorgeous wines. And and I I really also appreciate within the portfolio, the um, evolution program that you have going on. I know that one of the things that sometimes stands in the way of Australian consumers is just the wet tax that we have to pay on the wines incoming and the Evolution um, brand. If you can tell me a little bit how that came about, but for me, that really um, opened up the world of drinking wines from Oregon um, more to the everyday. And I, I just think that it was a gateway kind of drink for for a lot of consumers that were you know, kind of saying, I'd love to try something from Oregon, but I don't know if I want to spend $300 tonight on the bottle. So tell me about the evolution. Yes. No, it's a fantastic question and great opportunity to really speak to, I suppose, one of the benefits of climate change. So when Bill and Susan first started, you know, there were many years where it was just a struggle to get our Pinot Noir grapes to ripen. But throughout the years, we have since had a little bit of a warmer climate. And what this has allowed, not only for Sokol Blossers, but Oregon producers at large, is to really be able to more 
consistently and reliably produce beautiful, exquisite grapes, right? Because we have a little bit warmer climate. And what that has made is the opportunity to go, okay, we can have our premium range of our estate Pinot Noir or whatever varietal it may be, but also maybe create a wine that is more accessible, both in terms of its profile and taste, but also the price point. Because as you said, sometimes price can be an an inhibitor while a consumer may have that curiosity and interest. Sometimes it's it's hard. You're like, oh, do I want to, do I want to take that bet and, and go with that higher price wine? Whereas, you know, evolution or other introductory wines from the Willamette Valley can now start to offer consumers this four-way and say, hey, here's your first taste. Here's what we can offer you. Get on board with this and know there's plenty of rungs of the ladder to climb up, so to speak. For us, Evolution did not start with the Pinot Noir. It actually started with a white blend called Lucky Number no. 9 White back in 1998. And this particular wine really was the brainchild of Susan Sokolblosser, who was the president and running the business of the winery at that time and out doing sales. And she was having a hard time selling a white grape that we still grow and produce a single varietal bottling of called Mueller Turgau. Now, <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> yes. Many people might scratch your head. Why is a Oregon winery producing Mueller Turgau? Well, the grape was planted by Bill and Susan in homage to one of their parents because it was one of their favorite wines. And it's just always been something special and true to us on our estate. We only make a very small amount of the single varietal bottling. But as Susan was out trying to sell this wine, people were in a hit intimidated by how to say the grape. No one knew why it was in this tall, slender bottle. So it was actually one of the distribution partners we had that said, you know, Susan, you might want to take this and take some of those grape and turn it into a fun white blend. This was a time in America where you had that kind of Asian fusion cuisine was really, really popular. So coming out with a wine at that time that was slightly off dry, a white wine to bring freshness, but a little bit of sweetness to that heat, to that Asian fusion style was just perfect. And so it was standing alone as lucky number nine white was for quite some time. And then we had such great feedback. People asked, why isn't there a red blend? So we introduced that. But now we've really kind of seen that pendulum swing where the consumer is more engaged. They want to know where the wine comes from, what year it comes from. And so we decided, okay, we want to make single varietal wines within the evolution family. Again, coming back to our access to quality fruit that we could actually do that at at an evolution price point. And that's when we were able to introduce evolution Pinot Noir and evolution Chardonnay. So we have this beautiful two-sided portfolio that I can go out to your point, you know, to a market like Australia or other export markets where yes, they may have that clientele and that audience that is engaged and interested in the estate wines, but perhaps it's also a matter of building the brand, getting more recognition for brand Oregon first, and we can do so with Evolution Wines. So maybe a little long-winded answer to that question, but I think it definitely merits just speaking to that as you may come across other Oregon producers who have that split or that tier in their portfolio and some of their reasoning behind it. Absolutely. I think it's such a fantastic um, 
succinct portfolio, but also uh, it makes a lot of sense. And I feel like you can kind of hit all the different audiences you need to with the wines that you have on offer. And um, I mean, congratulations on 50 years of um, Sockle Blusser and coming up to 51, I suppose, in 2022. Um, I've, I have to say, I loved hearing from you. You've had such an incredible career so far and, and being so young. I mean, I'm sure just an incredible career ahead of you. I definitely think Sockle Blusser, you know, with their third generation now are in good hands. But in terms of uh, you representing them traveling the globe uh, they probably couldn't have anyone better that can speak better on their behalf so it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and to chat to you for a moment but I do want to know um, some of your personal preferences for drinking Um, so Emily if you could only drink three alcoholic beverages for the rest of your life what would they be and why Yes, it's such a great question. And, you know, for uh, us wine enthusiasts, it's a hard one to answer, of course, because you start going down the rabbit hole of, oh, no, I've made this three, but then what about this? And then I have this other drink I enjoy so much. So I will, of course, have to say Oregon Pinot Noir. I know that might be a little cliche, but I think just knowing that I could enjoy something from Oregon, specifically Pinot Noir, and I would hone in on Willamette Valley. You know, I'm not too fussed if it was Dundee Hills, Chehalem Mountains, Eola Amity, but really just to be able to enjoy something from the place I'm born and raised and now get to travel the globe and speak to would definitely be on my list. A second would be a Fino Sherry. And I always knew I enjoyed this, but let's see, this was late last year where I was fit. I'm currently undergoing my WSET diploma and doing the fortified unit. I was just so enamored with Fino Sherry that I'm just like, oh my goodness, it's one of my favorite things to, to enjoy. So I would definitely have that on my list. And then the final selection would be champagne. So I am truly a sucker for traditional method sparkling wine, but particularly from the Champagne region in France. And I don't have a specific producer. Of course, maybe I would just go ahead and say a vintage champagne, but really there's something so engaging for me when it comes to champagne. And again, just knowing the richness of the history of that region, the intricacy of the process of creating that wine Mm -hmm. and just enjoying the effervescence is just something that I absolutely love and is something I try to enjoy as much as I possibly can. But yes, those would definitely be my three selections for what I would get to. If I only had three for the rest of my life, that those would be it. (laughs) nothing but class Emily I have to say you're a woman after my own heart champagne sherry and pinot noir we could get along just fine if we were stuck together at the end of days and uh, having to select (laughs) some wines to to see us through we'd be we'd be in a good spot it's been such a pleasure hearing from you thank you so much like I said again for making the time and uh, you know there's some wonderful um, podcasts, but also um, videos out there if you want to see the family of Sockle Blosser talk about their incredible rich history um, on their website. So thank you again, Emily, and uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers to you. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod 
and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au. 